0: From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine.
1: It's important to have a child spend time in the kitchen, the most secure, comfortable, loving place in the house. The smell of food, cooking, your mother's or father's voice, the clang of the utensil, and the taste of the food, these memories will stay with you the rest of your life. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine,
0: stories behind cookbooks. I'm your host, Brian Hogan Stewart. You just heard from legendary cookbook author Jacques Pepin, reading from one of his latest books, A Grandfather's Lessons. Jacques is one of those guests who likely needs no introduction. GQ magazine called him probably the most impactful living chef in America. He's cooked for three French presidents He's led the culinary team at Howard Johnson's. He turned down the White House chef job when Jackie Kennedy offered it to him. He's hosted more than a dozen TV shows, including the Emmy Award-winning Jacques and Julia Cooking at Home with Julia Child. And he's won two dozen James Beard Awards. Wow. He's also authored more than 30 cookbooks. Two of his earliest, La Technique and La Methode, published in the 1970s, continue to serve as classic textbooks for those learning French cooking, and his dozens of other cookbooks range from technical to casual, including his latest works, Poulet et Legumes, a collection of, for the non-French speaking, chicken and vegetable recipes, and A Grandfather's Lessons, in which he cooks some favorite dishes with his granddaughter, Shori. Born in France and cooking in restaurant kitchens there by the time he was 13, Jacques might have taught more Americans how to cook than anyone, though he never lost his charming, thick French accent. And at 82, he's still producing a cookbook or two a year we sat down with Jacques at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Well, Jacques, thanks so much for joining us on the salt and spine podcast today. We're really glad to have you.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be in San Francisco, kind of my second home, or my first television home. Yes,
0: well, welcome back to your first television home. We're we're glad to have you here. Um, And we're glad to have you here to talk about your new cookbook, Uh uh, Grandfather's Lessons, Cooking with Your Granddaughter, Shori. It's a
1: beautiful and fun cookbook. Thank you. Well, we were not even supposed to have a cookbook, there we were doing a little thing together in the kitchen and uh, my friend tom hopkins with my photographer for like 35 years we have a back kitchen uh, in my house in in connecticut and uh, he said let's do some little thing with Shorey too and then rox martin with my you know my not my agent but the, the work for um and mifflin was of the editor she said but you're going to do a book with that i said not really but if you want to, she no, 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 we've got to have a book, so... I always like to simplify cooking in a very logical way, but then I super simplify it. I sure to do a, a curly dog here. <laughs> yes. I used to be director of research for Howard Johnson in the 60s, from 60 to 70 actually. And uh, working there, I don't remember where that idea came from that I did. I started cutting the hot dog a certain way and they would curl up into what I call a curly dog. So we put that on a, like English muffin or whatever. And I did a relish with that. So, some recipes were kind of fun like this, other a little more teaching. If it had been her choice only, we'll probably have, to have done a whole book of chocolate or dessert <laughs> or whatever. That's <laughs> what
0: she liked. Yeah, it's a very fun cookbook. Um, and I think fun, not just for kids, but very accessible to, I think, anybody of all ages, um, yes. who wants
1: to cook together as a family. I thought too. And I, yeah, well, I see we have 36 video in there along the recipe. At the end of certain recipe, if we thought it was pretty visual, then we said to know how it's done, go to, uh, and he tell you how to go on the internet to see, uh, Shari and I doing the demonstration, you know, so that was fun.
0: Yeah I noticed a theme in many of your cookbooks and you've written you know several dozen cookbooks yeah. now over the course of your life um has really been family you've you obviously had a cooking show with your daughter right. Claudine you wrote a couple of cookbooks with her she went on to write a cookbook that you contributed to you now have a cookbook with your granddaughter Shori how important to you throughout your sort of professional career of 60 plus years in kitchens ha, and 70 on TV. Years in the kitchen 70 years <laughs> in kitchens many many years on yeah. folks TV sets and yeah. in their home cookbook um, collections. How crucial has the theme of family um, and cooking as a family
1: been to you through that process? Well, it, it is pervasive throughout all books that I have, although not necessarily. I did La Technique and La Method, which was really how to show people how to cook from the beginning. In that context, I had a column in the New York Times for 10 years in the 80s, and I, I had a column called The Purposeful Cook. And that was uh, how to cook very economically for a family of six. So then the the you know the focus there was on the economy in the kitchen. So I did a book called "Cuisine Economic" out of this. Um, then I did two series on PBS called uh, "Fast Food My Way." So I wanted to show people uh, use the supermarket actually as a prep cook. You know, so in a professional kitchen the prep cook come in the morning, burn out the fish, burn out the chicken, slice the the, the, the mushroom, you know, wash the salad, the shop, the shallots. So you have all that stuff in front of you. Nothing is ready, but it's ready. So I have many cookbooks. I did a book for the the Cleveland Clinic for cardiac patient weight loss. But because I did so many shows on television, then there was always another idea, so a book coming with it. So those books are kind of focused in different direction. Um, many of those. So here I wanted just to have fun with my granddaughter and do things that I know she likes to it. And you're over eighty years old. A kid who is twelve years old live in a different world altogether i mean she read my book i have a book called the apprentice mm-hmm. talking i mean she looked at me like if it was the middle age <laughs> for <her laughs> cooking on a stove with putting wood <laughs> wow so uh you know i'm still probably faster with my hand and a knife but when she get to her iphone or ipod all that stuff yeah she's much faster than i am so you know establishing communication they are cooking together having fun it's important it's important at the beginning. She was three years old and came to my house, in her house as well. She had a big garden. I said, get me some tarragon. No, that's not tarragon. That's parsley. Here is sharp, tasted, you know, and so forth. And then uh, I uh, go to the market with her. I said, okay, I need some pear. Make sure they are, smell them. Make sure they are ripe. Or the tomato. So, you know, you touch the food. You handle the food. You go to the garden. And then she step on a little uh, stool next to my counter to cook with me. She's now taller than I am, but at that <laughs> point, it was very small. Give me a, give me a, a butter. See, give me a tablespoon of butter. So how many tablespoons you have in that stick? How many sticks you have in a pound? Okay, how many tablespoons I have in that cup of milk there? So we can bring some mathematics, some history, some whatever in it, you know, to make it, uh, she's, uh, to have fun. So. Yes, it's a great way of communicating. And of course, the cooking itself led to eating and uh, spending time at the table. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And and obviously, I know you've cooked with
0: your daughter, with your granddaughter since they were very young at very early ages. You've said, I think you've said before, um, this is a quote of yours, the moment for a child to be in the kitchen is from the moment they're born. Um, and I know right. you grew up with uh, a cooking family too. You had uh, yes. your mother, your aunts um, owned restaurants, cooked in restaurants in France. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and how that sort of influenced you to be exposed to cooking and food
1: yourself? Yes, in my family, I can count 12 restaurants in France owned by 12 women. So, you know, so much for the cliche of the French being a male. (laughs) Right. So, and most of that type of cooking otherwise would be usually by women. I mean, my aunt, cousin, too. Mm -hmm. That's what it was in France. So, you know, when I was a child and during the war, there was no television, of course. There was no telephone. We didn't have a telephone. No television, no telephone. Uh, And for me, my father was a cabinet maker and so was his brother, and so were their father, you know, cabinet maker, fancy stuff. So it was very easy. The choice was either a cabinet maker or a cook like my mother. We had kind of blinders on our eyes, you know. I could never thought that I could be, I don't know, a doctor, a lawyer. It was so far from our life or our family. So relatively, the choice was easy. You know, I went into that business, and my mother had a restaurant, so from age, like, five, six, seven, I was in there. I left home when I was 13 to go into a formal uh, apprenticeship. So, yes, I was very influenced by that. I am very uh, miserly in the kitchen and uh, going back probably to the fact that we never throw anything. At home, I did a show yesterday. I was in Napa and uh, one of the shows that I did, I did what my wife called fridge soup. So I ran, I ran the, the refrigerator and I had a couple of wilted uh, uh, scallions, you know, a couple of black mushrooms, you know, uh, half a uh, leek, you know, a uh, very soft tomato, some salad left over too. And then I did a soup with that and put a handful of couscous or oatmeal in it to thicken it at the end. So with a bit of fish cheese on top, great soup. So. You know, that type of thing is very natural and normal for us. And I find, actually, if I work with young chefs, if they can do that with food, I think it's uh, another way of uh, expressing your creativity.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things, uh, one of the aspects that's true about so many of your cookbooks is that they're based in... And simple recipes that right. are delicious, that are technique focused, use all of the pieces of the vegetable in in um in various ways, and that's yeah. something that I think has been a through line through all of your cookbooks that has
1: made them. Yeah, it really shouldn't be trendy. It should be a way. It's a way of cooking. Right. You know? So, I mean, I've been married, and I say, over fifty years, and at the beginning, I cook. Go somewhere on the road for a couple of days, come back, whatever I cook, was still there pushing the back of the refrigerator. My wife bought another thing in front or different. I said, whoa, 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 why didn't you finish that? Why So we get into those stupid arguments about this. <laughs> now when I get home, re- refrigerator is clean. I don't know what she does with it. I don't care. It's a, it's a way, uh, certainly, uh, it's kind of visceral for me because during the war, we didn't have that much to eat. And, you know, there is no place in the world, actually, who, who uh, spoil or, or, or disregard food the way we do in America. I mean, you can't go have been from Russia to uh, to West Africa, to, uh, you know, South America, and China, any part in the world. There is no place to waste food as much as we do here. People yeah. use food, you know, so. Yeah. So it's a shame. Yeah, it is a shame.
0: When you were working on this book with Shori, do you have any favorite recipes or memories from putting that together?
1: Yes, as I said, different recipe like uh, the the curly dog or thing funny like that. Or yes. she wanted to do a cake for her mother. I said, fine, I know. Let's buy a good pound cake, like uh, Sarah Lee, whatever it was. I said, we're going to trim it, trim each side of it so it's nice. Put those trimming in the food processor, make a uh, crab, crumb, you know. And I said, I'm going to show you how to cut that cake into even slice. So I had two pieces of uh, wood. Now, actually, I used two ribs of celery, one on each side of the cake. You put your knife flat so she can cook one slide mm-hmm. And then, again, a second side to cut it into four equal pieces like that, which is not that easy. Right. And then we had a jar of uh, a seedless raspberry preserve. I said, put that in the microwave for like a minute. We'd soften it a little bit. We put it on top. We put those four layers, put it outside, and put all of our crumbs On top of it, slice it, put a little bit of mint there, and a beautiful cake there, too. That she did, actually did, for her mother. I wanted her, you know, to be able to do that by herself, or to show a friend, or whatever. So, obviously, you've been putting together cookbooks for decades,
0: uh, right. and we're a, a podcast dedicated to cookbooks and stories behind cookbooks. So, I'm curious how you've seen either your personal process or just uh, your work in relation to the broader cookbook industry change over time. You know, you've gone from producing classic tomes right. like La Technique to now your cookbook with a curly, curly right. hot dog featured in it. I'm curious for sort of your take on how the cookbook industry and your work has evolved over time.
1: There is probably more visual now, video and all, also, right. even in the picture itself. I remember, uh, taking a Polaroid picture of the food and you wait until you get that to undo it to see what it looked like, then change something. To, wow. Now it's on the computer. You change it, in one second. It's done. So, uh, the process itself is quite, is different. But for me, uh, it has been a, a process of simplification from the beginning to end, the last 70 years. And also it has to do with your metabolism. As you get older, you know, I need less embellishment on the plate. I need to get to the core of the thing. And if I have a tomato out of the garden, full summer, it's really ripe, nice, and a great olive oil and uh, some coarse salt, I don't really want much embellishment around that, you know. So as you get older, you can Tend to take away, take away from the plate. When you're a young cook, you can to add, to add, to add mm-hmm. more. You know, so it's a process which, uh, I know I went through too as well as any other type of chef. So there is that process, simplification and so forth. And, uh, you know, I don't really know whether, uh, I'm more knowledgeable than I am about food. The way it goes now with a different type of ethnic food. So if you keep your eyes open, you always learn and learn. For me, uh, I still learn. And even many of my recipes that I look, I say, I did that. Why did I do that? I will simplify it further and further as I did with, uh, with my granddaughter. For philosophically, at least, uh, you know, writing down a recipe is destroying the recipe. You know, the idea because you have no more freedom. Yet, uh, you still have to buy my cookbook. <laughs> 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 yeah, of course. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I would tell people, you know, you buy a cookbook wherever it is from. You should, to make, to, you know, to be fair to whoever wrote it, you should do it exactly the way it is in there the, the first time. And, uh, and if it's good, you like, you're happy with it, you're likely to do it again. If you do it again, then you take a fast look. By the third time, you may not even look at it. By the fourth time, you, um, quote, improve it. You say, I think I'll put more tomato in there. I won't do that. And a year later, you don't know where it comes from. That's your recipe now. And that's a normal process. If someone does that with my recipe, I find it gratifying, you know, in many ways.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think your recipes and many of your cookbooks are certainly yeah. designed in that way. They're designed yes. to be simple and adaptable and for people to build upon, which I think is why they've really sort of stood
1: the test of time, too. Well, they say the difference between the repertory of cooking, that small book of like 8,000 recipes we have in France to, uh, you know, uh, Julia Child, you know, uh, a cookbook, my 15 page for a baguette. So, uh, there is two extreme. And probably the best way for me to give a recipe to someone or take a recipe from someone, it's from another chef. Like I had lunch at Troll en today. So if you like something very much, like, say, wow, that was good, what did you do? Oh, I did this, this, that's oh, yeah, a good idea. That's all I need. Uh, re- reverse in the reverse as well. If you ask me too, I don't really need the proportion or the amount of stuff. I get an idea. So, which is different when you do with someone who doesn't know how to cook, you know. When we did the series with Julia, people don't realize we had no recipe. Mm. We decided no recipe. We decided, okay, we're going to do stew tomorrow or we'll do whatever. So it was a great freedom in many ways. Crazy for the cameraman because they had no idea where we were going to go <laughs> and do or whatever. Right. Uh But we had no recipe, so we could put whatever we wanted in it. In addition to that, when you do show on television, like the series, the first two, three series that I did at KQED here, uh, it was on time. So a show of 29 minutes, 30 minutes, like 29 minutes. So, you know, one guy would go by with a sign, 15 minute, 10 minute, five, 1, one minute, 30 second wrap up to, sometimes it could be stressful, you know, how do you have to finish two, three recipe? So when I started doing it with Claudine, I say, you know, she's here to be the, the the Vox Populi, if you want, and ask the question that people would want to ask, and I'm showing her. So I'm showing her how to do a dough, and she's struggling with the dough pushing, and if a guy goes back with a sign three minutes, I push the key over, <laughs> grab the dough and finish it up. <laughs> so, uh, so fine, they let us go over, but not too much editing. I'm saying all of that to say when we did with Julia, Julia said, we're going to cook, when it's finished, we'll tell you. Some show we're over a hundred minutes. I never know what happened to the other tech wow. to do. but uh, So, you know, we had a lot of wine. We had no recipe and no limit of time. So, I mean, we had a good time right. cooking. So, it's another way of doing it. Uh, but I think it did translate to the public to a certain extent. I think people realized we were having fun, even though we argue all the time. At the beginning of that series, she said, oh, just write down, already. ready, you think what we should do, which I did about 75 name she did about the same amount and i think we used three of mine <laughs> out of the whole thing <laughs> So, but it's fine as a professional chef if you have food on the table i'll cook it one way or the other i don't really need a recipe in fact i like it better if i don't have a recipe so it was a nice way of doing it and we had a good time
0: we'll be right back with more of our conversation with jacques Pepin. We're talking today with Jacques about his incredible cookbook resume, ranging from his early books on French cooking to his latest with his granddaughter, Shori. A Grandfather's Lessons has lots of fun recipes, from the curly hot dogs we're discussing, to cottage cheese pancakes with blueberries, to fish tacos, to a sandwich called a croak shory. And there's bonus videos online to complement the cookbook, which show Jacques and Shori cooking together. In uh, a testament to Jacques' ever-present ability to be teaching, I even found myself correcting my plating thoughts as I was watching Jacques plate curly hot dogs. And that's one of the aspects of Jacques' career and in particular his cookbooks and his TV shows, that really stands out. He's always teaching, and you find yourself eager to learn, never bored, able to grasp whatever it is that he's demonstrating, from dicing an onion to filleting sole. He's never produced flashy, highly edited shows. Uh, His cooking is real, and he's going to walk you through the recipes step by step, right there by your side. Slate's Gillette Edelman once wrote, Watching him, meaning Jacques, Dice an onion or dip a kitchen-toughened finger into boiling water is like watching Steph Curry casually hit a three-pointer from half-court. No, you'll never be that good, but it's a marvel to behold, and you ought to copy his form. And with a grandfather's lessons, that form is on full display. There's nothing like watching a master pass on his craft to future generations. Now, before we jump back in, I want to remind you that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. They offer hands-on classes and events for home cooks. I know that you will love the open, airy, welcoming space. Really, it's perfect for learning different cuisines, uh, techniques, and styles from their staff of expert chefs. And we personally love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which you might have seen as the backdrop for all of our Salt and Spine interviews. Now don't miss the Civic Kitchen's upcoming classes on topics like Chinese Summer Dumplings or Pretty Ugly with Michael Harlan Turkle, who we'll talk to later this summer. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchens classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Jacques Papin. One thing that makes your cookbook so unique too are the illustrations that you do. I'm obviously you're a very talented chef, but you're also a very talented artist and we have like these also menus sitting in front of you. Yes. Um, and I think I've seen more of that come out in some of your more right. recent cookbooks and, and maybe yes. even more to come you have compared though uh, painters and cooks in some sense and said that right. you don't really hold their hold them at the same level and you sort of think of their crafts as a little bit different right. a master painter and a master chef can you talk a little bit about the distinction you've made as you've explored yes. both of those crafts I
1: mean both for me uh, the technique become very important you know you can go in a you know in an art school and learn how to mix yellow and blue to make green and do that with your thumb or with your spatula and all that and the low uh, perspective and so forth unless you do abstract and after two, three years yes, you can stand outside do one painting after another does that make you an artist? not really but at that point you're a pretty good craftsman if you're a good craftsman if you happen to have talent in your hand then it's much easier to bring that talent on a higher level because you have the mean in your hand. And certainly, likewise, in the kitchen, you know, first, you have to be a craftsman, in my opinion, in shopping, cutting, cooking, all of that type of stuff. And if you don't have that much talent, you know, as I say, there is 24,000 restaurants in New York. Even if you don't have that much talent you will still have the craftsman be able to run a kitchen properly, have a good food cost, have a, a good crew, and run a little restaurant. If you happen to have talent, like Thomas Keller, I say, or Tom Colicchio, or someone like this, then with that craftsman in your hand, then you can bring that talent on a higher level. You have a bit of creativity and talent, a bit of love put into it, then you get to superlative cooking. And at that point, uh, there is maybe a bit of an affinity between the... Uh, the artistry of a cook at the level of maybe of as I say some Thomas Keller too with a great painter but up to a certain extent I still look at cooking as a, a craftsman world you know more than a great artistry or whatever yeah. creation but some people may disagree with me but it's okay <laughs> I yeah. think
0: that's a wonderful comparison um well you've written dozens of cookbooks what's next for you
1: well, more of the same until I die. I guess you know I have that book of menu that I'm doing coming this summer, so that's a bit different. And that's it, yes, I still like to do some show with my granddaughter with friends. And I did a show a, few, a couple of weeks ago, no, a couple of months ago, with uh, Action Bronson in mm-hmm. New York. And yeah, played a big <laughs> rapper
0: and all that. Yeah.
1: So that was different. What a, I, mean,
0: I, I can just imagine
1: this. we're smoking pot. <laughs> the duo.
0: Yeah.
1: I can't wait to watch that. So, uh, you know, you have different type of, uh, depending who you work with, it may be very different. And likewise, you know, for a young chef, they say, what do you think I should do? Well, very simple. All you have to say is yes, chef. That's basically it. I mean, again, if you're going to go work for uh, Daniel Boulu in New York, you're not going to change his cooking. I mean, you're there to learn. So all you do, you say yes, chef, and you do. And you try to look at the food through the eye and the aesthetic of that chef. Whether it corresponds exactly with your sense of aesthetic or your sense of taste is relatively immaterial. You're not there to please yourself. You're there to do it that way. So you do that for a couple of years. Then you go work with Jean-Georges, and you do it for a couple of years again, you know, in a different way. Then you do it with uh, Thomas Keller, you know, again for a couple of years, so you absorb an enormous amount of point of view and enormous amount of knowledge too. Now it's time to, uh, you know, to give it back, but now you're going to filter it through your sense of aesthetic, your sense of taste. Now you're doing your own stuff, but not at the beginning, you know. So there is that process of learning other professional chef, which for me work out this way. It used to be much easier because the idea in the kitchen years ago was to conform. You would never have thought of uh, doing it differently. Well, your your comment just now about. Um advising young tech young chefs
0: to learn the technique and to pass right. on that knowledge I think is a wonderful way to close because you've you've produced so many great cookbooks that have really done that that have taken the techniques right, that you have you. mastered and passed them on to home cooks to kids as you've done with several of your cookbooks and to professional chefs there's professional right. chefs who say they learn to cook from reading your books like la method and la yeah. technique so I think just on behalf of so many people who have learned skills and techniques from you thank you for all of the wonderful cookbooks that you've produced. Thank you. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: I'm so glad we were able to sit down with Jacques while he was in San Francisco recently to talk about cookbooks, family, and eating in America. Now we're headed over to Omnivore Books and checking in with our friend Celia Sack in our From the Vault series. I love these segments where Celia shares a work from her collection of vintage and interesting cookbooks. And if you live in the San Francisco area, don't miss Celia's exhibition, The Joy of Cookbooks, at the American Bookbinders Museum, running through late August. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey, good. How are you doing? Great. So we just sat down with Jacques Pepin and talked about some of his latest cookbooks, including Pelé et Legumes and A Grandfather's Lessons, two really exciting books. I'm hoping you have something to share with us from your vault for this episode.
2: Absolutely. I wanted to share his very first book ah, that a wonderful. lot of people don't know about. Yes. He wrote this with Helen McCulley, <laughs> uh, and it's called The Other Half of the Egg. He did it in, when was this done? The 1960s, 1967. Okay. Uh, and it's all about 180 ways to use up extra yolks or whites. Awesome. So I just love this book because it's so simple and talks about, you know, we always wonder, what do you do when you just when a recipe calls for just yolks or just whites? And this is all recipes about it but it's also just charming and it's before he was really well known and so i just i love to um to grab it whenever i can find it
0: yeah that's such a great concept and i think it's so fun to look back after he's written you know 30 something cookbooks at his very oh my God, first one
2: he's, he's amazing and you know la technique and la Methode mm-hmm. sort of put him on the map but uh but this is a really early find that i just love of his
0: oh how fun thank you for sharing that absolutely Talk to my you pleasure. Soon. okay And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, to hear Jacques reading an excerpt from A Grandfather's Lessons, and for recipes for his curly hot dogs and strawberry shortcake. Plus, enter to win a copy of A Grandfather's Lessons in our weekly cookbook giveaway. If you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Our program was produced today by Allison Sullivan and myself. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.